Welcome! Thank you, everybody, for coming. And um, I, I have a question for you guys before you start. Um, am I correct that, like, there was not a homework assignment where you had to come? Is that true? Like, you're here because you're interested in the subject? I'm here because I'm interested in the subject. Okay. Now, why are you interested in the subject? What's interesting about this? It's just interesting in ways. These, um, well, there are a lot of theories. No. A lot of reasons. No. A lot of them are wrong, and a lot of them might be right. Yeah. And no. it's all confusing, and I like confusing things. Okay. Very good. Um, anybody else? Why is this interesting? Does, does anybody find that people's emotions get worked up over this topic? Yes. Anybody notice that? Yes. People get like kind of defensive sometimes, right? Um, that's interesting. Uh, any, anybody else? Like, um, I've always wondered about. What? Anybody? Yeah. Well, a reason why it's interesting is that it has to do with like our origin, where we come from, our, the past. Sooner or later, everybody gets interested in where did we come from, right? Sometimes it's their family's genealogy. Sometimes it's like this really big stuff. So here's here's what we're gonna do today. Um, I'm going to talk for something like 90 minutes. There may be pizza somewhere in the middle of that. I'm going to ask you to hold your questions until the end. Um, we can pass out pieces of paper if you need to write them down to remember them. Um, in fact, I'd suggest that. Or, or if you have a little note thing in your cell phone and you type yourself a note, uh, I will be happy to answer every question that anybody has. I'll stay till 10 o'clock and answer questions if you want to. I'm gonna ask, I'm gonna ask to not do questions until I'm done because in all candor, I am going to what I'm gonna present to you is probably not really what you've heard anywhere else. Um, and I'm probably gonna take everything that you know or heard about or didn't hear about apart and have it scattered all over the floor like parts of an engine and put it all back together. And I'm asking for the chance to put it all back together before we start, you know, getting into the details. All right? Um, uh, the priority for questions is kids first, adults second. Um, and, um, and, and for the adults, I, I think your observations about what the questions are will be very interesting observations for you to make. Um, and, and what I'm going to present to you will probably irritate some people, may offend some people. Um, but what, what my, my commitment to you will be is, if I can prove something, I'll tell you I can prove it. 
If I can't prove something and I can only infer it, I'll tell you that I can infer it. If there's no proof for something at all, I'll tell you that. Um, everything that I'm going to present to you, I believe, fits very nicely with Scripture. And again, some of you may not be so sure halfway through, but I think I, think I can address those concerns. And this is a very worthwhile topic. Um, uh, for a long time, I didn't really pay any attention to this topic. Um, but then... Then some things happened, and, and, and then I suddenly got very interested. So let me give you a little picture of where we're going to go, and then I'll, I'll go right into my story. Um, and again, I am, I'm really thankful that you're all here. There is, um, there is nothing better than a really curious mind. There's nothing better than somebody who's asking lots of questions, and... You don't have to agree with anything I tell you, but I'm here to get you to think. If I get, if I got you to think today, then, then, then today was successful. So here, here's where I'm going to go. Um, one of the things I'm going to address today is how young earth creationism turns Christians into atheists. Okay? Might as well start with something inflammatory, so I'm starting with something right there. Young Earth creationism is, um, Earth is 6,000 years old, created in six literal 24-hour days, um, and, you know, this whole field that's called creation science. I submit to you that Young Earth creationism does far more damage than good in the world, and I realize that some of you are not inclined to agree with that, and I respect that, but, you know, that's my opening statement. However, um, I am going to t today I'm going to show you that there is fantastic harmony between Scripture and modern science if you take the pieces apart and put them together in the right way. Um, if, you, if you understand what you heard today, you will be in a position where you fear no atheist. How many of you have ever gotten in a debate with any flavor of an atheist or like, no, it's, like it's all random, it's all purposeless, we all evolved from the slime. Any of you ever gotten in that kind of a conversation with different people, okay? Um, you will find that those guys can be pretty ferocious, and they will be, if you, if you learn what I'm teaching you today, um, you'll be bulletproof, okay? And th this is very important to me, because they ask very good questions. Okay, and you need to be able to answer them. And, and this is really important to me. Okay, um, our job as Christians, and I, there might be some people here who are not Christians, I'm not sure, but most people are. If you're a Christian, you ought to be able to defend what you believe as something that is actually factually true. You should not have to believe things on blind faith. Jesus never asked people to believe things on blind faith. I challenge you to show me a place where somebody was expected to believe something without having been shown something else first that, um, that was impressive. Uh, that some, some, something out of the ordinary, something to go on, okay? Um, I'm going to use evolution to prove design, 
okay? And most people think those are polar opposites. I say they're absolutely not. I'm going to talk about how to steal the chess queen of evolution from the atheist and get it back on the faith side. How many of you have ever played chess? Is the queen pretty important? If you can steal the other guy's queen, like let's you're three-fourths of the game and most of the pieces are gone, they have a queen, you don't, not good. Right? Steal the queen, now it's on your side, the whole game tips the other way. So that, that's, that's what I'm going to talk to you about today. So, this story starts when my brother Brian went to seminary. In 1999, Brian graduated from college with a history degree and went to Master's Seminary in Los Angeles, which is John MacArthur's school. And he got a, a Master's degree in theology. Okay? Now this is a very, very conservative, very rigorous seminary. You learn Greek, you learn Hebrew, you learn Aramaic. You walk out of the place with a gigantic Excel spreadsheet of all the exact answers of every single verse in the Bible and how they all fit together. And I went to his graduation, and they all stood there in their blue suits and red ties. And, and John exhorted them to go and reprove and preach the word in season and out of season and all that stuff. And he goes to China as an undercover missionary. And he spends four years in China. And by the time he came home from China, he was almost an atheist. Okay? And he was angry, and he had a lot of questions. A lot of questions. Brian is very, very smart. And, and, and he, but he's a certain kind of smart. And his gift as a smart person is asking really penetrating questions. Okay? Brian knows how to ask questions that get to the roots of things, okay? And most people ask surface-level questions. Brian goes deep. Now, so Brian's asking me all these questions, and um, I'm like, hey, I'm, I'm cool. I'm a stud. I've done seeker small groups at Willow Creek. I've, I've talked to more seekers and more skeptics than, like, anybody I know. I can handle this. And um, pretty soon, uh, it's like the water is up to my nose and the water is up to my ears and I'm, I'm feeling like I'm drowning in his questions. Because he's asking much better questions than any of those people at Willow Creek ever did. And I mean, Willow Creek is a church that eagerly invites non-Christians to come and you know, worship, listen, consider everything. And the, the, the evangelism department at Willow Creek would send me the toughest people because they knew I was good at them. And Brian was still like way tougher than any of those other people. So he was actually dragging me with him against my will in the atheist direction with all of his questions. And so I go to visit him in China, and this is 2004, and we're riding around in this little bus, and we're seeing stuff, and we're arguing about all kinds of stuff. And and I feel like I'm I, I feel like I'm losing ground. Um, and and uh, and so I'm floundering around and I, I, I find myself reaching for science. Because I'm an electrical engineer. 
And I said, come on, Brian. Look at the hand at the end of your arm. Don't you think, like, do you actually believe that millions of years of random accidents got you the hand at the end of your arm? And he was ready for that question. And he goes, hang on, Perry. Hang on. I know where you're going with this. I know he knows where I'm going with this. He goes, okay, let's say we got a, like a million falcons and they're all flying around for half a million years. Like that's a lot of fun. There's like a trillion falcons over a long period of time. He goes, if, if, what, if occasionally one of them would have an accidental mutation that gives it better eyesight, and then it can see better, and then it can hunt better than all the other falcons, and then it outlasts those falcons, and then you get the better falcons, and then it happens again, and then it happens again. Like, why couldn't you end up with a hand at the end of your arm? And, and I knew that lots of biologists would completely agree with him. I knew that even if intuitively I didn't think that made sense, that I knew it made sense to a lot of scientists, and I knew that I didn't know. And I decided I'm going to find out. And in fact, like I am going to seriously find out. And you know what? If, if what I find out makes me an atheist, then so be it. Then Laura's going to wake up in the morning next to an atheist, I guess. But whatever. Like I'm going to, I'm going to follow the evidence where it leads. Okay? And I did. And that was 11 years ago. And... Oh my goodness, I had no idea how deep that rabbit hole was going to go. So I'm going to give you an idea of where that rabbit hole went. So, so here's, what, here's what happened. What happened was I floundered around for a while. Let me, I floundered around for, the, for a while. And... Um, in fact, I was really nervous. I, I was kind of scared to death of where this was going to take me. Um, I didn't know where it was going to end up. Um, and I kind of flung myself into the void. It's like, I'm just going to find out the truth, whatever it is. And I'm going to use my engineering instincts. Now, why, why did I do that? I trusted my, in, my engineering instincts more than I trusted my ability to say, read the tea leaves of the Bible. So anyway, um, I floundered around for a while, and I, it's like, and I started buying books, like, obsessively. I'm like, I'm reading websites, I'm buying books, I'm reading stuff, and it's like, well, there's this position, and then there's this one, and it's the left, and it's the right, and it's the left. It was very uncomfortable. And finally, one day, I was reading something, and I got this big, giant flash of insight. I was reading about DNA, and it's talking about the genetic code, and suddenly, I made a realization. And here's what the realization was, that... that a strand of DNA is basically these letters, A-C-G-T, A-C-G-T, um, adenine, cytosine, thiamine, thiamine, guanine. And these are letters of a digital code. And this is just like ones and zeros in digital data. 
The only difference is DNA has four letters and binary code has two. However, you can represent, you know, the four as, you know, zero, one, zero, zero, one, zero, one, one. So actually they're equivalent. Digital code, digital code. In 2002, I had written this book. This book is called Industrial Ethernet, A Pocket Guide. And, um, and I used to work in an industry where we sold networking equipment to factories. And, um, and uh, a, a um, professional society approached me and said, we like your magazine articles, will you write us an Ethernet book? And I did, and Ethernet is the blue cable that connects your router to your, your modem and, and runs through your house or your office, plugs into your computer, that's Ethernet. And industrial Ethernet is pretty much the same as any other Ethernet, it's just got tough, it's some slight differences. And so I wrote this whole book about how ones and zeros go across the wire. They go, you know, they, they come from Yahoo or Google or Facebook and they get to your computer and you press a button and a message goes, back. And it was this giant, like, all at once, this giant realization, hey, wait a minute. This and this are the same. And then I started peeling the layers, and it's like, they are seriously really the same. In fact, scary how similar they are. Okay? Now, that led to a conclusion. Okay, and, and, and here, here's the conclusion. It's really, really simple. Let me, let me show you. The pattern in DNA is a code. The ones and zeros, they mean something. The ACGTs, they mean something. You could have a string of, of data in a DNA strand, and it, it says, make me an arm. Instructions. Right? Digital code, or you could have a string of digital code that says, make me a picture on his Facebook page. Instructions. It's digital data. Okay? And it's all packed together in layers. It's all the same, like, oh my word. DNA is a code. All the codes we know the origin of our design. <laughs> Okay, there's 999,999 codes out there. Postal codes, bar codes, HTML, um, Morse code, um, C, Visual Basic, right? Every, every kind of file on your computer. There's doc files, and there's XLS files. And there's TXT files, and all the you know all the extensions. The ex the different extensions all mean different language of code. That's what they mean. Oh, whoa, okay. We got a, a million codes. All of them are designed except one, and the other one we don't know. Okay, therefore. We have 100% inference, not proof, inference, 
that DNA is designed in 0% inference that it is not. Okay? I'm like, that's useful. Okay? So here's what I did. I, I put up a website called CosmicFingerprints.com. And, and I gave a talk at Willow Creek, actually. I gave a talk in 2005 called, If You Can Read This, I Can Prove God Exists. Okay? And I gave this talk, and we recorded it, and I put it on my website. And here's what I did. I wrote an email series called, Where Did the Universe Come From? And you would sign up. You go to Cosmic Fingerprints, it's still there. You can still sign up for it. It's great. It says, sign up for my five-day email sequence, and I'll, like, and, and I'll unfold this story for you. And so you'd sign up, and then you'd immediately get the first message, and then the next day you get another one, and the next day you get another one, next day you get another one. And if you replied back to the emails, I got the emails. Now, my brother got to where he never quite became an atheist, but he sort of settled in this agnostic, which means I don't know, is what agnostic is, in this agnostic place, and he finally decided, I don't want to argue with Perry about this anymore. And it wasn't probably going to be real healthy for our relationship to keep banging away at this, so he just kind of backed off. But now I was like, my appetite was up. It was like, okay. Can I defend this? Okay, if I put this in the marketplace of ideas, can I convince like even the toughest skeptic? If I take all comers, like I don't turn anybody away, as long as they're polite or reasonable, you know, then I'll take them on. And so I started doing that. Well, so this was like partly my Two-thirds, it was my outreach personal ministry project. One-third, my, I'm not sure if this can really hold up, but I'm going to get people to bang on this. And because in my consulting work, I was a Google advertising consultant, I started buying traffic to the site with Google Ads. So what I'm most known for in the professional world is for writing this book. This is called The Ultimate Guide to Google AdWords. This is now in its fourth edition. This book's now been out for nine years. And um, this is the world's best-selling book on internet advertising. And I knew how to, I was really good at buying Google ads. And there's Google ads all over the internet. You go to the New York Times website and there's Google ads there. You go to somebody's blog, there's Google ads there. You go to an astronomy website, there's Google ads. And I would put these Google ads all over the internet, and I would spend money driving traffic to my site. And at the time, I could get a visitor to my site for an average of three cents. And over a period of five years, I spent $200,000 sending people to my site. So I got five million visitors almost a quarter of a million dollars of website traffic and emails from 10,000 angry skeptics. And I'm not exaggerating. That's really how it was. 
the email list grew to 175,000 people. And these emails are going out to these people. And when they're replying back, I'm getting the emails. And I decided I'm going to go to the mat, go to the wall with any reasonable person who will do it. And it, it eventually became a game of how fast can I back an atheist into a corner? Well, so I, I, I give the talk at Willow Creek. And a few months later, I'm going back and forth with this guy. And he gets flustered because he can't, he can't counter my argument. And so he goes over to the largest atheist discussion board in the world at a site called Infidels, and he posts a link to my talk at Willow Creek, and he says, be nice to this guy while you rip this guy to shreds. <laughs> and I'm like, oh dear. I did not want this. I guess I did, but I didn't, right? Um, I, I, I have breakfast with my friend John Fancher, and I'm like, John. I can't stand these people. And he's like, God has a sense of humor, Harry. <laughs> okay, all right, I'll do it. So now, now I'm now I'm on the, like, like the you know Grand Central Station of nasty, right? All these people. I'm like, okay, can I defend this logic, right? Can I defend that it's a code? Can I defend that? You know, there aren't any codes that aren't designed and, and all of that. Well, that became the longest running, most viewed threads in the history of infidels. Okay? That discussion thread continued for five years. Okay? And nobody punched a hole in my argument. Okay? Now, what I decided to do at first was not take a position on evolution, because I didn't know. What I've taken a position on is just the basic idea that life requires some kind of a design. It didn't just, like some cell didn't accidentally pop into place in a warm pond somewhere for no reason at all. Like, if they want to tell you that's what happened, they have to prove that that can happen. Nobody's proved any such thing. Okay? The only thing anybody's ever proved is that life always comes from life. That's, that's the only thing you can prove. Okay? So, um, this evolved, this little challenge. And what, what, happened, what happened on infidels was the argument would go around in circles. They would go, well, I don't. I don't buy your definition of code. I'm like, look, I got this definition from an engineering textbook. But, but you know how arguments go around in circles on almost anything, whether it's politics or whatever? And one day, I realized something. Perry, you have to show them how to prove you wrong. Tell them exactly what you need. they need to do. And so... I, I did. I wrote a specification. I said, if you want to prove that you can get a code and not design one, here's what you have to do. And I posted that at naturalcode.org. I wrote a whole spec. You can go there and read it. And I started saying to people, 
if you'll, if you can show me a code that's not designed, any kind of code, if it's not designed and you can prove it, I'll write you a check for $10,000. And the arguments just stopped, just like that. All the ducking and weaving and going around in circles and everything, it just stopped. Because somebody had laid down the gauntlet. I'm not going to sit here and argue with you about what a code is. You meet the spec, I'll write the check, here's the spec. I mean, nobody even could punch a hole. Of course they couldn't. Like, I got it out of an engineering textbook, okay? It worked. It worked great. Um, and so, so, so now here's, here's where I'm going with this. So I have a book coming out in September um, called Evolution 2.0, Breaking the Deadlock Between Darwin and Design. And I will get to this book in a little while. But what I have done is I have raised the 10 grand to 100,000. And I'm saying... If you can solve this, I'll write you a check for $100,000. However, I have gone and I have, got, I have gotten some investors together. And right now where it stands is we are saying if, so let's say that you figure out I pour these chemicals into my bathtub and we get the right chemicals, they self-organize and they start sending messages which are received on the other side by the other chemicals and I actually have a communication system without ever cheating, without ever designing one. However you did that, if we can patent what you did, we'll buy the patent for $2 million. Okay, and this is in the book and it's running right now. The book's not out yet, but like if somebody comes to us, like we're all set up and ready to go. Like, we will buy the patent from you. And that's very valuable because it would be artificial intelligence, which I don't have time to go into. But so this is where this, this is where we're going with this. Well, so I wanna I wanna pause from this. So so all all I've done so far is I've established that just the fact that you have instructions in digital code that say Here's the instructions to make an arm. Here's the instructions to build an eye, to build a spine, whatever. Those clearly and scientifically infer design with no, there's no counter argument to that, that, that anybody's ever come up with. And like if you type in Perry Marshall atheist, Perry Marshall DNA code, you will find thousands of websites where people are talking about what an idiot I am and you know, like all that kind of atheist, you know, stuff. But nobody's ever solved the problem, okay? Now, I want to go in a different direction for a while. And some of you might have to share these, I don't know. But I have a handout that I want y'all to look at. And pass, pass those around. And I want to... I want to give you a different way of reading Genesis than what you have probably been given up to this point. One of the things that I got from, so the, all these, I get all these emails from all these people, right? And for a period of time, I was just taking all comers. I got so many points of view from so many different people and so many kinds of reactions and so many kinds of responses. I mean, 
I talked to every kind of person in this debate that you can imagine. I talked to Mormons, I talked to Jehovah's Witnesses, I talked to atheists, agnostics, Catholics, Protestants, Orthodox, Buddhists, Hindus, Muslims, I mean, every kind of person you can imagine. Okay, and in, in formulating an answer for all of these people, um, I believed that the Genesis story actually fits modern science really well. Really well. And I'm going to go through this kind of quickly, and I, and I want you to just follow along with me, okay? And as I go through this, Genesis chapter 1, we're going to make two assumptions. Two assumptions... And you have to have the right assumptions coming into the text for this to work. But if you make the right two assumptions, modern secular science, just as you would get it from any geology book, and Genesis 1 match perfectly. Okay? So hear me out. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The text literally means, at the beginning of time, God, who already existed, created everything out of nothing. Okay, now, in secular science, the Big Bang is the beginning of matter, space, time, and energy. And it all starts from a single point. And it explodes outward. It was 13.8 billion years ago. And it was the most precise event that's ever happened. Here's how precise the Big Bang was. It is precise to 200 decimal places. Like, to within a precision of plus or minus point zero 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 one with 200 zeros, if it was up, if it was too strong, by the most minute amount, all of that matter would have sprayed out and never collected with gravity in the stars. And you would just have a vapor. If it had been just slightly too weak, it would have all come back and collapsed in on itself and turned into a big black hole. And the difference between a big black hole and a spray of mist is plus or minus 200 decimal places of minute precision. And physicists know this. It's not controversial. Just to have stars and matter. That's not, that's not to say anything about the fact the, the attraction of a proton, the attraction of an electron, the mass of a proton, the mass of a neutron, the relationship between the, the strong force and the weak force, electromagnetic waves, any of that. It's just the one thing, just the expansion. Incredibly precise, okay? Um, some Christians hate the word Big Bang because they think it suggests this accident. Well, here's the joke. The word Big Bang was coined by an atheist named Fred Hoyle who hated the theory because it sounded too much like the Judeo-Christian story. Before the Big Bang Theory, they thought the universe was eternal. But a Belgian Catholic priest named George Lamatra said, Hey, 
all the stars look like they're moving apart. I think they originally were in one spot. I think we can wind the clock backwards to a single point in time where it all came from. And all the atheists are like, no, that sounds too much like in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And, and Fred Hoyle called it the Big Bang, and it stuck. Okay? It was anything but just like some random explosion. It's incredible. And it's also the beginning of space and time. If you understand Einstein's theory of relativity, you understand that space and time are intertwined, and so you get back to that zero moment. There is no, you can't go before, there is no such thing as before. There is nothing. It's exactly like Genesis 1-1. Okay? Now, the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. Now, I told you, to make science and scripture match, we have to make two assumptions, and here's what they are. The first assumption is that day, which we will get to, is a period of time, not 24 hours. Okay, this did not happen in six days. This happened in six very long periods of time. Um, the Hebrew word for day is yom, and yom has about five different meanings in Genesis. Sometimes it means a day, sometimes it, peri- it means a period of time. I'm simply saying it doesn't mean 24 hours. Okay, and the second assumption is right here in verse 2. The earth was formless and empty, darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And this establishes the point of view that the rest of the chapter is told from. Genesis 1 is not told from outer space. It's told from the surface of the earth. Okay? It's telling you what you would see if you were on the Earth's surface during this time. Now, what a physics, astronomy, or geology book will tell you about our solar system and the Earth is that our solar system formed, and then there was this mass circling the sun, which collected into planets, that a giant asteroid crashed into the Earth about four billion years ago, and 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 um, and when when the chaos cleared, that that you ended up with the Moon circling the Earth, and then you had a violent atmosphere um, where uh, where it was full of of poisonous gases and all kinds of stuff like that. And that then gradually, over the next millions of years, the atmosphere started to become more and more like the atmosphere we have today, and the, and, and the earth started out covered with water, and then land began to bunch up in certain places, and you had land emerging out of the ocean, which is what you see in the next few verses. Okay, and it was dark because the atmosphere was opaque. It was full of all these clouds and dust and everything, okay? So this is what's going on 
And God said, let there be light, and there was light. The atmosphere began to clear so that the sunlight could come through. God saw the light was good. He separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, the darkness he called night, and there was evening and morning the first day. Now, evening and morning the first day, I believe it's a Jewish expression for completion, that days begin in the evening, and then they go to the next evening, and this is just saying that that one cycle of God's work had been completed, okay? And God said, let there be an expanse between the waters to separate water from water, so now you have clouds forming overhead, and you have water in the ocean, so that the earth is cooling enough so that instead of just a massive swirling, boiling water, that you actually have water on the earth. So God made the expanse and separated the water under the expanse from the water above it, and it was so. He called the expanse sky, and there was evening and morning the second day. And God said, let the water under the sky be gathered to one place, let dry ground appear, and it was so. God called the dry ground land, and the gathered water he called seas, and God saw that it was very good. So far, we're in exact, tit-for-tat, totally compatible with modern science and geology. Then God said, let the land produce vegetation, seed-bearing plants and trees in the land that bear fruit, seed in it, according to the various kinds, and it was so. What, what does secular history tell us? It, it tells us that you had, you had plants before you had animals. So what would you have on the earth? You'd have grass and, and, and trees and stuff like that. The land produced vegetation, plants bearing seed according to their kinds, trees bearing fruit with seed according to their kinds, and God saw it was good. It was evening and morning the third day. Okay? And God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the sky to separate day from night, and let them serve as signs to mark seasons and days and years, and let them be lights in the expanse of the sky to give light on the earth, and it was so. Okay, so now the atmosphere is becoming clear enough that you actually can see the stars and the moon and the sun as distinct objects instead of just light. God made two great lights, the greater light to govern the day, lesser light to govern the night. He also made the stars. God set them in the expanse of the sky to give light on the earth, to govern the day and night, to separate light from darkness. God saw that it was good, and there was evening and morning and fourth day. God said, let the water teem with living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the sky. Now, if you go back, you know, any geology book, any history of the earth book, it will tell you there was birds and fish before there were mammals and land animals. So God created the great creatures of the sea, every living, moving thing, which the water teams, according to their kinds, every winged bird, according to its kind, God saw it was good. God blessed them and said, be fruitful and increase in number and fill the water in the seas. Let the birds increase on the earth. There was evening and morning, fifth day. God said, let the land produce living creatures. Let the land produce living creatures. Okay, that's important. The land produced the living creatures. Okay? Now you tell me where there's a problem with an evolutionary kind of story there. 
Like, where's the problem with some kind of an evolution? Okay. Um, can you hold your questions to the end? U.S. Oh, well, okay. That, that's true. <laughs> Fair enough. Sorry. Um, I was thinking that, like, evolution says that animals came from fish, and the Bible says that animals came from land. Well, um, okay, so, so that's good. So you've got, a, you've got a couple ways that you could think about that. So one could be that the, that the animals are nourished by the land, okay? Um, another, another piece of it is that whether you're talking about plants, that are on the land or plants that are in the water, they both need dirt in order to be nourished, right? Notice that it doesn't say, and God made zebras and God made giraffes and God made cows and God made... It's, it's not specific, but it's saying that the land produced these things, right? So, I don't think it obviously or generously invites an evolutionary view, but it certainly doesn't eliminate it either, right? Um, okay, what the, and it was so, God made the wild animals according to their kinds, livestock according to their kinds, God saw it was good. Then God said, let us make man in our image and our likeness and let them rule over the fish of the sea, birds of the earth, over the livestock, over all the earth, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created the man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Okay? Now, um, the last thing I just want to point out Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. By the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. And God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it he rested from all the work of creating that he has done. And I want you to notice it never says, and there was evening and morning, a, second, a seventh day. The seventh day did not end. We are in the seventh day now. Now is God's season of rest from creating. Okay? This is very important. This is one of the reasons why I argue day is, is a period of time. It's not 24 hours. Now, I really have to address this full force. There's a bunch of organizations, a bunch of people that say... Um, Frankly, it, go, it goes like this. If you go to like a Young Earth creationist conference or talk, here's how it's going to go. A guy's going to get up at the beginning and he's going to say, ladies and gentlemen, we have a lot of problems in the world. We have murder. We have rape. We have fornication. We have adultery. We have this. We have that. And we have so many people disrespecting our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And you know where it all begins. It all begins in Genesis. 
It all begins with not taking Genesis seriously. It all begins with men disrespecting the word of God with Genesis 1. Because secular science tells us about millions of years and apes and all of this kind of stuff. And this is why we've compromised and we must protect this. Because if you can't take Genesis literally, how can you take literally that Jesus rose from the dead? Okay, and they, they, they get you all worked up. It's like, yeah, boy, there's a lot of problems. And boy, I think he's right. It all starts in Genesis. And he's like, if you don't take Genesis as literally as possible, you are participating in the downfall of civilization. Okay, I've heard Kim, Ken Ham get, get this story. Okay, and it's like, if you, if you don't hold fast to the word of God, which really means... If, if you don't interpret the Bible my way, you're hastening the decline of civilization. Okay? Now, once he's done that, he proceeds to tell you, no, the Big Bang never happened, it didn't work that way, and there aren't millions of years, and it all happened 6,000 years ago, and they go on to invent their own version of science. Which, once you get educated enough, you figure out does not work. Now, I'm speaking as an electrical engineer. Okay, how do I know the Earth, how, how do I know the universe is 13 billion years old from astronomy? How do we know that? Okay. Astronom an astronomer says to you, this star is a million light years away. Now, if a star is a million light years away, when did the light from the star leave the star so it could get to you? A million years ago. All the young Earth creationist guys are trying to tell you that, that that's wrong. No, it's not wrong. How do you know that? Because I can send a satellite in space. I, could, I can send a satellite from here to Saturn. The satellite can take a picture of the night sky, and we can compare the picture to the picture we get here, and we can look at that, and we can go, we can figure out how far away all these different stars are. Yes, they really are, a million light years away. Now, how can light be a million years old if the universe is 6,000 years old? Well, you got two answers. Um, God made it look that way. Oh, really? So God made... 13.79999 billion years of apparent but not real fake history. <laughs> Boy, if you go down that road, you're in trouble right away. You're in big trouble right away. Don't even go there. Okay, then the other, then the other answer is, okay, light is slowing down. Well, it's not. And here's why it's not. Physics is what I call a hard science. 
So there's soft sciences and there's hard sciences. Soft science is psychology. Soft science is anthropology. Soft science to a degree, paleontology. Hard science, mathematics, physics, chemistry, engineering. In hard sciences, in the hard sciences, you get exact answers to questions. Okay? Electrical engineering, my degree, is hard science. In electrical engineering, you say, I'm building this silicon chip with these, this um, chemical formulation of silicon, and if I apply 3.6 volts to this junction, I will get this much flow of electrons, and this is how they build chips. They model it all for months and years before they actually build the thing. The model has to be accurate to within like hundredths of 1% for the most part. And it works because the models are so accurate. It's all modeled mathematically. It's all modeled on a computer. If the speed of light was changing, physics itself would fall apart. And I don't have time to develop this, but I'm telling you that is the most ridiculous theory. Okay? The universe is old. If you read creationist literature carefully, they all admit that it doesn't that it looks older than we say it is. Somewhere. Look. Relax. A day is not 24 hours. Hello? Just get over it. Okay, sorry if that sounds harsh. But but look, you can't amputate science to force it to fit the Bible. It's wrong to do that. And it makes Christians look like idiots. When you, okay, and, and I, I, when you understand science as well as I do, I'm very comfortable with science. I designed these speakers. I modeled them before I built them. It's trustworthy. It works. Your cell phone works because it's so trustworthy. When Christians butcher science in order to make it fit their interpretation of the Bible, it makes me so angry. It's foolish. My brother, here's what happened to my brother. He got all these answers from this like super conservative seminary. He gets to China. Nobody can stop him from getting on the internet. Nobody can stop him from reading. Nobody can stop him from exploring. Nobody can stop him from being curious. Nobody can guilt him into believing a certain way. And, and he eventually figures out, he's like, Earth isn't 6,000 years old. There's no way. We can't do this to kids. It's really, this is how young earth creationism turns Christians into atheists. They eventually figure out, no, 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 that story they told me isn't true. And remember how it was all set up. The way it was all set up is, well, if you go over here and you believe this, then you're not a Christian. If the Bible would, you know, there's no way you could, like, interpret it this other way. That would be wrong. We would be sliding towards Gomorrah and Armageddon if we believed that. And so they buy into this whole premise, and then guess what? They find out it's not true. Christians should not be just making up their own version of science. And sorry to belabor the point, but I mean, this is so important. So let me, uh, let me, let me keep going. All right, so what about evolution? Well, so I told you, for several years, 
when I would have these conversations with people, I decided not to really fight anybody about evolution, and I was just exploring and see where it goes. I'm like, look, fine if you believe in evolution, but codes are designed, there's design of biology, and, you know, and that was good enough. But I started getting more and more curious. I was like, I would read a book, and then I would go read another book, and I would just go back and forth between these two sides. And I, 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 I formed an increasingly strong impression. It was like, well, I don't know how it be, would be possible for something to just evolve, because, remember the Falcon story? Like, random... Like, there's some random mutation, and so here's, here's, what, here's, here's what Darwinism says, okay? Now, where I'm going to go with this is this. Evolution is awesome. Darwinism is crap, okay? Darwinism and evolution are not the same thing. Most Christians, especially conservative Christians, have been educated to believe that evolution is like a four-letter word. Okay? Evolution 2.0 is really what I'm advocating. And I'm going to explain what that means. So let me explain what's Darwinism. Okay, here's what, here's what Darwinism says. Okay, I got a fish. And the fish has DNA... All right, the DNA of a creature. So, like humans have human DNA is about three quarters of a gigabyte of digital data. So, CD, same amount of data that fits on a CD is the data in every one of your cells that has a plan for you. Darwinism says that so when a fish makes a baby fish, the DNA gets replicated, and the baby fish has a strand of DNA, but its strand of DNA has a copying error. Okay? And what Darwinism says is most of the time the copying error is bad, some of the time the copying error is good, and when there's a good one, you get evolution. Okay? That's Darwinism. And then repeat, rinse, repeat, rinse, lather, repeat, rinse, lather, and repeat. Do it for millions and millions of years, and you'll eventually get us. That's what Darwinism says. Well, I want you to recall that I am a communications engineer. I wrote an Ethernet book. Half of this book is about the error protection mechanisms that prevent copying errors. It's really critical. If you get even one bit wrong in a packet of data, when you're talking on your cell phone or you're on the internet, you get, you get even one zero that was supposed to be a one or one one that was supposed to be a zero, it will very often trash the whole entire message. It's incredibly delicate. So... All your computers, all your cell phones, all your routers have layers and layers and layers of double-checking, triple-checking. Did the packet come right? No. Resend it. Did it come right? No. Resend it. 
all this is going on, literally about two-thirds of the data, like y'all pay for data on your cell phones and stuff, two-thirds of the data is actually redundancy to make sure the message got through okay, because copying errors are not allowable, and they never improve the message, ever. For all practical purposes, there's no such thing as a copying error that makes it better. Okay, now this is me as a communication engineer going, this part right here cannot possibly be right. It's wrong. I could, I could do a three-hour seminar why it's wrong, but it's wrong. There's no way that things evolve that way. Nevertheless, I'm reading, 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 reading. I've got like 150 books upstairs, and I've read hundreds of scientific papers. Nevertheless, as best I can tell, evolution seems to have happened. So how did it happen? Is this possible? In one day, I encountered a paper by a guy named James Shapiro, and he was describing something that I thought was fascinating. First of all, he described the error correction systems in a cell. Cells have three layers of error correction every time they replicate a new cell. And it's accurate to better than one part per billion. Okay? Cells have an enormous amount of machinery devoted to correcting copying errors, and it's just like the stuff in this book. I mean, scary similar. Like, we thought we invented this stuff in the 50s, <laughs> and it's been around for 3 billion years. Whoa! And I mean, scary, uncanny how similar it is. Checksums, redundancy checks, oh my goodness. He's describing the error correction systems, and then he tells about an experiment in 1944. This lady named Barbara McClintock was breeding, she was a geneticist and she was breeding corn plants. And she would damage the chromosomes and see what happened. She was acting like a computer hacker. And she damaged a chromosome in a corn plant so that it could not reproduce. And she did this with corn maize, you know, the, the corn with the colored kernels. She was so intuitive and she was so observant, she would study the patterns of, of kernels on the corn, and she would figure out what the chromosomes were doing this is before they discovered DNA. They knew what chromosomes were. They didn't know exactly what they were made of. A chromosome is just a big chunk of DNA, is, is all it is. Humans have 46 of them. She would, she would damage the chromosome, and then she would see what happens, and she, she, here's what she figured out. She figured out that the chromosome had been damaged, and then the plant which wanted to reproduce, could not reproduce, so it repaired the damaged chromosome with another piece from another chromosome somewhere else, and then the plant was able to produce, and it repaired its own chromosome, and it replaced the missing information with acceptable information from somewhere else. Okay, this would be like if somebody, if you had a novel and somebody ripped out page 175 
And the book figured out how to fill in the missing page with storyline that fit. A corn plant did this. She gave a presentation at Cold Spring Harbor Laboratory and explained this to all the scientists, and they laughed at her. They're like, you're kidding. Plants can't do that. She had to go underground with her research, and she did not publish papers for 20 years. She finally started publishing her research again in the 1970s, and she won the Nobel Prize in 1983. Her picture is on a postage stamp, and what she, what she figured out was that you can have a strand of DNA, and, and you can break it up into sections like this, A, B, C, D, E, and the cell can rearrange it and go, you know what, A, B, C, D, E isn't working out. We're going to do A, C, E, B, what am I missing? D. D. <laughs> Cells can do this. Just about every cell in existence has the ability to do this. Dr. Shapiro, who's at the University of Chicago right now, he's 74 years old maybe, he discovered in 1968 that bacteria can do the same thing. He's the guy. He figured out bacteria can do this. How many of you ever heard of Ebola? Okay. Ebola exists now. It didn't used to exist. That's because there's an intentional mutation process that's going A, B, C, D, E. Uh, no, that's not working. Let's try A, D, E, B, C. No, that's not working. Let's try A, B, C, E, D. Uh, no, that's not working. Let's delete D altogether. Let's silence that out. No. Let's try A, B, C, 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 D, E. Cells do this. A cell, some cells can splice their DNA into 100,000 pieces, rearrange the pieces, and completely re-engineer their whole body chemistry. So, for example, how many of you have taken antibiotics? Do you ever notice the doctor says, you have to finish the bottle all the way to the bottom. Do not go halfway through, get rid of your strep throat, and then go on. Do you know why they tell you that? Here's why. If you don't kill it dead, those strep germs will sit there and they will rearrange and rearrange. They'll actually go to other cells. So cells, so here's a cell, and a cell has this thing called a plasmid. It's really a USB stick. Okay? So imagine a cell, it's got a USB stick with a copy of its DNA, and it goes around, and it, so you're taking, you're taking, um, you're taking antibiotic for your strep throat, you got strep, strep germs all through your body, 
and the antibiotic is killing them. It's leaking into their cell wall, it's destroying their cell wall, it's killing them. Those germs go around with their USB stick and they go, I need a pump. You got a pump? I need a pump. You got a pump? You got a pump? Hey, he's got a pump. I don't care if he's sleeping. I just <laughs> Some of them, will, they'll even kill a cell and steal it. Um, cholera. Cholera cells just go around slashing and burning and they, and they, they steal code and it's like, he's got a pump. They, they, so, so they get his USB stick, they copy, they copy the data to their USB stick. It's like, okay, shh, okay, there's the part that codes for a pump. Insert pump, read the code, build a pump, pump the poison out, update my USB stick. Hey, I got a pump here. You can cut here. I got a pump. Here, I got a pump. I got a pump. And it starts sharing the pump code with all of its friends. Then it starts dividing off new cells that have pumps. And now the antibiotic doesn't work anymore. That's what happens if you don't finish your antibiotic. That's evolution. That's evolution. And it's going on all the time. And it's not because of copying errors. It's because cells are smart. Now, nobody's out there telling people this, but it's in the literature. It's been in the literature for 70 years. It's been in the literature since the 1940s. This is the biggest untold history story in the history of science. There are five different mechanisms of evolution. I'm going to quickly go through them. Um, Transposition is what Barbara McClintock did. Transposition is a strand of DNA that goes from A, B, C, D, E to A, C, E, B, D. That's transposition. Moving around these sections. It's not a copying error. It's a complete rearrange. Okay? Number two. Um, this is called horizontal gene transfer. That whole USB stick thing. Hey, I got some code. You want some code? Hey, do you have some code? I need some code. That's called horizontal gene transfer. Goes on all the time. Okay? Number three. Um, I'm going to skip quickly. Just go. All right. So here's how epigenetics works. So cells can gray out these letters but still keep them. Okay? So... So a cell can say, um, I'm going to temporarily cross out A and D and just have B, C, E. Okay? Just for today. Or just for this week. So like, if, if, you play, if Kyler plays his bass guitar and he gets calluses, the reason he's getting calluses is his skin cells said, you're shedding skin too easily, hang on to the dead skin cells longer, switch this gene on, switch this gene off, hang on to those dead skin cells longer so that he doesn't start bleeding when he plays a guitar and he will develop calluses and that's epigenetic. And what they found is some epigenetic signals can be passed to the offspring. So creatures can learn from their environment 
switch genes on and off in, and, and their children will actually inherit a better adaptation to their environment. A guy named Lamarck came up with this idea 200 years ago. 100 years ago, they completely dismissed them, kind of laughed them out of the place. And in the last 20 years, epigenetics has become one of the hottest areas of research because actually creatures can pass changes onto their offspring. Um, in, the, in, the, in the World War II, there was a Dutch famine in 1944, and they did a study of the babies conceived during the Dutch famine, and those babies have, through their whole life, slower metabolisms that conserve food more, and they actually have dietary problems from living in, a, in an abundant food source. Uh, Audrey Hepburn is one of these people, okay? And it's because of epigenetic switches that happen during the pregnancy of the mothers in the Dutch famine. Very well documented. And so it's like if we take, say, flight 6429 was delayed from Chicago to Winnipeg, so it will not be departing before 6.45 p.m., and we gray out some of the message, we could change it to flight 29 to Winnipeg will depart before 6. And all you have to do is gray out letters, and you get that. So here's what, when, when an embryo is developing... There's one set of epigenetic switches that switches on and, and, and ignores 95% of the instructions and builds an eye. And then it puts a different epigenetic template to build bone, and then a different template to build skin, and a different template to build hair, and a different... So there's 200 kinds of tissue in your body, and it takes the same genetic code and reads them with 200 different templates to build 200 different kinds of skin cells, and that's why you could have a plan for an entire human body in a CD-ROM, even though Microsoft Windows takes 20 CD-ROMs. Okay? Very interesting. Now there's another one. It's called symbiogenesis. It's when cells form cooperative relationships. So let me give you an example of this. Who can tell me what a chloroplast is? What's chloroplast? It's, um, it, has, it has to do with, um, it's in plant cells and it has to do with uh, photosynthesis. Yes. It's the engine for photosynthesis in a plant cell. Now, you know what it really is? A chloroplast is a blue-green algae. Let me explain. So, you take a big cell, like, um, let's say, a big, a big complicated cell, and you put a blue-green algae cell in it, and instead, instead of eating it, it says, hey, wait a minute. You can take sunlight and turn it into energy? Let's have a partnership. Okay? And what happens is you got plant cells and they got a bunch of chloroplasts. They are virtually identical to algae 
but they live inside the plant cells and they reproduce together. So every time the plant cell makes a new plant cell, the algae cells also replicate at the same time with their own strand of DNA. Okay, so there's the chloroplast has its own DNA, which is separate from the cell's DNA. At some time, probably two billion years ago, a big plant cell that could not do photosynthesis ingested an algae and they got into lockstep. Every green thing you see is green because it has algae in it. This is called symbiogenesis. And they, they form this merger, and once they've merged, they can't live apart. If you cut the chloroplast out, it can't survive on its own because it's developed dependency, it's added in some of its DNA, it's 99% the same, but that other 1% that needs it isn't there anymore. If you take them apart, it'll kill both of them. This gets you an instant new species, and it has been produced in the lab. This is not just a theory. Now, how does, I mean, can you try to imagine how complicated this must be? It's willful. It's cooperative, okay? Now, there's a, there's a fifth mechanism of evolution called hybridization. So, hybridization is when Hybridization is species 1 plus species 2 equals species 3. Now, a really familiar example with this would be horse plus donkey equals mule. Okay? Now, a horse has 63 chromosomes. A donkey has 63 chromosomes. A mule has 126. It doubles the number of chromosomes, which means it's got twice as much digital data now. Usually, the donkey is sterile. And usually the donkey is male. However, there have been cases of fertile male mule. Did I say donkey? Mule. The mule is usually sterile. 99.9% .9 of the time it's sterile. It's not always sterile. It's not always a male. Well, if you have a, a, a fertile male donkey, or mule, sorry, if you have a fertile male mule and a fertile female mule, you get a new species. Now this is very hard to do with animals, but it does happen. It's easier to do, it's pretty easy to do with amphibians, and it's very easy to do with plants. So 11,000 years ago, we had weed, a certain kind of weed, plus goat grass, equals wheat.
hybridization. In hybridization, you get in almost in, in some cases a literally instantaneous new species. Most of the quantity of progress from single cell to all of the animals and plants and diversity we have, most of a, a great deal of that progress happened in big jumps from either symbiotic mergers or hybrid mergers, where all of a sudden you have a completely new creature in one generation. And then you have all the other stuff that kicks in, cleans up the genomes, and adapts to the environment. So if you get a whole, a whole race of mules that are fertile, then their bodies start doing surgery on those genomes, uh, rearranging stuff, deleting stuff they don't need, shuffling it all around, and uh, several hundred generations later, you have a creature that has significantly adapted to its environment. And notice, none of this is random, accidental, ha happened just by chance. This is the most incredible engineering ever. Okay, do you know any computer programmer that can rearrange 100,000 lines of code and get new code that still works? But cells do this. Again, this is the biggest untold story in the history of science. It's just incredible. Um, so, for example, it, uh, the, the, the genome data strongly suggests that sea squirts, that two species of sea squirt mated and produced a hagfish, which was the first vertebrate. You have two invertebrates mating together, doubling the number of chromosomes, and you get a backbone. Wow. Okay, this is amazing. Now, do you see how as an engineer, I would start to find this completely enthralling? Like, oh my word. Like, nobody ever told me this. And again, it's been in the literature for decades. This, this theory is 40 years old. The guy came up, a, a Japanese guy came up with it in 1972. It's called Ono's 2R hypothesis. And nobody's ever heard of it. But biologists know about it. Um, so evolution is actually intentional, systematic, elegant, it's incredibly sophisticated. And as far as we can possibly tell, it's designed to happen. So, you know what's really interesting is, so I have to get back to our atheist friends. I would get in these debates with atheists, and I would go, well, you know how evolution really happens. Like, you know why you have to finish your antibiotics, right? It's like because the cell can completely rearrange its DNA or it can go, it could go steal the USB stick from the other guy and update its DNA in 20 minutes, not 12 billion years. You know that, right? Oh, wait, wait a minute. Right? It totally does not fit the story they've been told. 
they thought it's just, you know, millions of years and billiard balls banging around in the universe and eventually the better species just emerge and it just happens because of natural selection. No. It's incredibly intentional and it's going on all the time. So, you go to the Galapagos Islands and the bird beaks are, you know, they're longer where they need to be longer and they're shorter where they need to be shorter. That is because they actually have the ability to adapt as necessary to their environment. It's so good it looks like they were just put there perfectly designed from the beginning. No, they weren't perfectly designed. They were given the ability to adapt. So, I want you to imagine, has anybody, I know this is a young crowd, has anybody here ever used DOS? <laughs> You ever like a, a really old computer and it's it's the black screen and the command line and you type dir and it gives you a directory and you type the name of the file and it runs the file. Okay, now I want you so thought thought experiment. I want you to imagine that Bill Gates and Paul Allen wrote DOS in 1981 and then nobody touched it ever since. And then the 80s go by, and the 90s go by, and it develops Microsoft Word all by itself. It develops Excel all by itself. It develops a web browser all by itself. It develops a Windows desktop all by itself. It develops network connectivity all by itself. It writes a modem driver all by itself. And then we end up with the Windows of today, and nobody had to touch it. Would you be less impressed with Bill Gates than you are right now, or more impressed with Bill Gates than you are right now? Okay, that is how Christians should think about evolution. Christians have totally got this thing backwards. Completely screwed the pooch. Christians have abdicated from science they're like, oh, you know, there's too much prejudice, and they won't listen to us, and, and, you know, that evolution thing is a big hoax. No, it's not a hoax. It's just that it's been explained wrong for 150 years. It does not work the way Darwin thought it did. Darwin was actually closer to the truth than the guys that came after him, which I won't go into. It is way, I mean, which is harder, writing DOS or writing DOS with the ability to turn into Windows 30 years later? So, like, this is how you should think about evolution. It's not a four-letter word. That's why I call it evolution 2.0, because it's just this completely different thing. Um, so, in my book, evolution equals design. So... So I'm just going to summarize, and we can take a break, ask questions, whatever. To the extent that science can prove anything, our model, modern digital age proves God exists. Code requires design. Design is a necessary assumption in biology. How did these cells know what to do? They're endowed with some kind of freedom, some kind of intelligence. Evolution is real. It's profoundly elegant engineered process, and the modern scientific story fits the scriptures. 
Um, and uh, I didn't get into Genesis 2. We'll probably want to talk about that at some point. But I think I've, maybe your brains are full by now. But that is, I, 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 I got it all out there. So now you, you guys can, you can take a break and we can ask questions and stuff. So, so, so thank you very much. So, yes, sir. I must say, you have made me think, so you might say that you've succeeded at least some. Good. Thank you. I, I appreciate that. So, thank you.